Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. You're listening to Agenda by Women in the Arts. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And I'm Katie Winton. In about 15 minutes, we're going to be talking to local artist Nadia Hernandez about her second solo exhibition, Cosas Antes y Después, Things Before and After. Um, I think we need to dive straight into this episode because it's going to be a big one. Um, Have you heard Chimamande Ngozi Adichie's comments last weekend about trans women? This has been a very divisive issue, but it's actually brought up a lot of residing tensions within feminism at the moment. Today we're joined by writer and poet Alison Gallagher, who wrote a Sydney Morning Herald article a few days ago titled, No, Transgender Women Like Me Did Not Grow Up With Male Privilege, in response to Adichie's comments. Yeah, so to give you some context, Nigerian novelist and feminist Timamanda Adichie made some divisive comments during an interview last week on Britain's Channel 4 News. I'm going to play you part of the interview now. But, you know, are trans women women? My feeling is trans women are trans women. Um, I think that if, I think the whole problem of, of gender in the world is about our experiences. It's not about how we wear our hair or whether we have a vagina or a penis. It's about the way the world treats us. And I think if you've, been, if you've lived in the world as a man, with the privileges that the world accords to men, and then um, sort of change, switch gender, it's difficult for me to accept that then we can equate your experience with the experience of a woman who has lived from the beginning in the world as a woman and who has not been accorded those privileges that, that men are. And so I think there has to be, um, and, and this is not of course to say, this is, uh, I'm saying this also with sort of some, uh, some very big comments there. Um, thanks for joining us, Alison. You wrote in your Sydney Morning Herald article that you deeply admired Adichie prior to this interview. How did you feel when you initially heard those comments? Um, yeah, totally. It was pretty heartbreaking. Um, I, yeah, have, like, read her work and enjoyed her work for a really long time and really kind of was one of the people that I would sort of um, reference as, like, someone who, you know, practices feminism in a way that is, like, quite inclusive and is quite you know intersectional and is aware of like all those things and um so it was pretty yeah it was pretty heartbreaking to see her sort of define womanhood as like not you yeah I think part of like the backlash from it was that she has kind of been this darling of feminism for quite a while and it's so so much of the way that she speaks is predicated on this idea of like the complexities of experiences and how th- it's not just one story and so I think it was like you, you're used to oh not everyone but like Jermaine Greer those kind of era feminists were used to hearing them being like oh my god like come on yeah, but totally. for her to come out with those kind of comments yeah it's interesting and I think the language that she uses in kind of switching she says like switching from like man to a man to a woman. I just think that that kind of language about switching one day you're a woman and then one day you're a man erases the complexities of the trans experience. So for someone who's just coming to this conversation without a lot of experience, can you talk about those complexities for pre-transition? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I guess 
in terms of her sort of saying um, that we like switch gender or change gender, it really kind of makes it seem like this thing that's really linear and it's kind of one day you're this and then one day you like become that when actually it's such a more kind of nuanced um, experience that is shaped by so many different diverse kind of influences that um, to sort of boil it down to you are this and you are like that for a period of time and then you become this kind of person um, kind of fails to really capture the complexity of what transition is. I mean, I guess it's kind of the case that uh, the way that she's talking and sort of the experiences that she's talking about and the definitions um, were all kind of things that were invented by cis people to describe um, like cis experiences. So trying to like put that somewhere on the map of trans experience doesn't really work in the same way because there's such um, different kind of ways of navigating the world. Sorry, can we just go back in case people aren't aware, cisgendered? Uh, So cisgender just means that you are assigned a gender at birth and you are happy to, yeah, Yeah. happy to keep. Yeah. I think that kind of, that switching thing is, kind of reinforced maybe by like reality television if you have like a the kind of Bruce Jenner um Caitlyn Jenner it's yeah. like you have your passing male and then you have your kind of makeover and yeah, I think that's totally. like with like some of the language that people have used in the past it's like it's more than makeup and something to be yeah. a woman because I think like in popular culture in the media we have this idea that it's like you're passing male then you have the big reveal and then you're passing and it's like again that proximity to cis womanhood or cis masculinity that reinforces that idea of like and then you switch yeah totally i mean the idea that cis people have about like trans women not being women because they like put a dress on or like put makeup on like trans people feel that way as well like that's not like something that like it's kind of held up as this idea that all trans women I guess feel that way when I think that arguably most trans women undergo a process that's a lot more yeah complex and I guess like kind of messy and so having it as these two neat like you are this and then you are that um yeah it's it's kind of reductive and really fails to care I mean it's also just the case that like cis people experience you know transition all the time like transition happens all the time and no one sort of like the word transition literally means like you know in a state of like I guess developing or growing towards something else so yeah yeah I think one of the problematic well for me the most problematic part of Adichie's kind of comments is the fact that and you have written about this in your article is the fact that she kind of says that to be a male or to be a cisgendered male before a transition means that you are afforded male privilege and she fails to kind of she fails to recognise that maybe, um, you know, masculinity or ideas of the patriarchy actually affect males as well totally. or people who are prior to transitioning. It's not a smooth ride. And I think I found that really surprising considering she writes a lot about um, the kind of failures of putting experience into one neat package or one neat box. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that it's kind of the case that those, you know, privileges that you are afforded if you are perceived socially as male, if you are a trans woman, or even even like a cis man who's who isn't you know privileged in who isn't like privileged um, 
in terms of like whiteness or mm. things like that. It puts these like privileges or benefits outside of the framework of oppression, which doesn't really like you kind of say like, oh, these benefits exist, but it doesn't really take into account the nuance of experience and the ways that gender actively you know, harms trans women from the day they're born and kind of equates it with cis male experience in a way that doesn't really make sense or conflates them in a way that doesn't really kind of neatly carry over. Mm. I think, But it's strange then because she acknowledges the rigidity of like something like masculinity in terms of like how it oppresses men or cis men as yeah, well. Yeah, totally, it does. And, uh, yeah, and so it's it's interesting. And I think that's like a lot of the the kind of comments that people were making about their experiences prior to their transition. Um, having male genitalia was one thing, but they weren't necessarily passing. Yeah, and totally. even if they, like, masculinity is so rigid that if you're in any way pushing against that or... Um, presenting in a way that isn't very rigidly within For those sure. confines then you're still being yeah can yes. you speak about totally. yeah. yeah I mean yeah I think that a lot of being able to navigate through life as a cis man or whatever and like comfortably uh do that yeah is really predicated on being able to enact these like masculinities mm-hmm. in a way that like patriarchy says is okay for you to do um I mean it's it's kind of the the case that like, you could even sort of say that the ways that patriarchy works can just be seen in, you know, more feminine men or um, the ways that sort of homophobia works even um, is predicated on misogyny because it's men not conforming to standards of masculinity that are seen as preferable for patriarchy to kind of do its thing. Yeah, yeah right. Alison, thank you so much for coming in to chat to us today. If you missed any of the conversation that we've been having about Aditi's um, comments recently, we'll pop it up on the Agenda show page. We'll uh, also pop up some of the links to the resources that you've spoken about in some of your articles, as well as some of your articles. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to pop a track on now, chosen by Nadia Hernandez, who will be in shortly to talk about her upcoming exhibition, Your Own Agenda. de caña dulce recién cortada, decir que es bien bonita, señorita, y la sonrisa como las flores de reserva, cristal, bonita como el turpial que canta en el morichal, de sus cabellos y la mirada, la cascada que me moja el corazón. Y yo, que muero de soledad, tengo la yegua en silla para los dos. Y yo, y yo, que muero de soledad, tengo la yegua en silla para los dos. Mando de la chacaracha, es mi muchacha, con esos ojos tan lindos de tamarindo. Y yo, que muero de soledad, tengo la yegua en silla para los dos y yo, y yo que muero de soledad tengo la yegua en silla 
That was Simon Diaz with Cristal. How's that? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that was chosen by artist Nadia Hernandez, who's with us right now to talk about her upcoming exhibition. Nadia, this is your second solo exhibition, and the subject matter of your work for this show was heavily influenced by your recent trip back home to Venezuela. Could you start telling us a little bit about how that trip influenced your work? Yeah, of course. Um, well, so it had been eight years since I had been back home which is such a long time. And so much has happened in the country in that amount of time in terms of like the political situation, like the humanitarian crisis that the country faces. And at first I wasn't sure how my work was going to be influenced when I went, but um, I guess just being there was one of the most important things. And um, reconnecting with my family, reconnecting to the house where I grew up in, getting to attend the protest and being immersed in the situation and feeling Venezuelan again, which is something that I've never lost, but being in a place and making work that's essentially about place makes such a difference when you're in the place <laughs> where you're talking about. Speaking about reconnecting with family, I've had a few conversations with you in the past about your relationship with your mother and how that kind of affects your work as well. Can you tell me a bit about your mom? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, okay, so my mom's like central to my practice and um, it's to do with the fact that we left the country together when I was nine years old and um, she was, what, 29? Yeah, or 30. And um, my mom's been so important because she is the reason why I have retained such a strong sense of identity. So when we lived together um, in the United States, which is where we went to, she was doing her PhD, um, it was easier to retain that sense of culture because in, in the food that we eat or in the traditions that we uphold over like important holidays like Christmas time or um, just in the fact that we would speak Spanish every day. Um, so she's really central to my practice and it was since moving to Sydney where I kind of experienced maybe more of a loss in a way and kind of 
felt the need to to retain that to retain that sense of identity and you've talked about possibly making collaborative works with your mum in the future yeah yeah so I mean this is an idea that I had recently and I passed it through her <laughs> um, she was very excited a bit hesitant because maybe my ideas are a bit wild but um, I thought it would be interesting to kind of explore um, what feminism means to Venezuelan women or how that relates to the current state or maybe how that's how maybe that's evolved over the past 17 years or how maybe it hasn't. So does your mum have a different perception of feminism to yours or is it there, are there similarities in your kind of ideas? Um, I think, well, it's really interesting because I think my mom's ever since I've known her, so I guess since <laughs> I was born, um, she's been a feminist. And I think in her decisions and the places that she's gotten to in life, feminism and I guess that sense of, like strength have always been present. So but maybe our ideas are quite similar, but maybe at the moment, I feel like I have more access to different different texts or different interviews. And maybe my idea of feminism is broader, but it's only because she hasn't had access to, to said things, but it's not because she's not open to them. And you made a piece of music recently that uh, we played on our first edition yeah. of Agenda. <laughs> and that was in collaboration with um, musicians Brock Fitzgerald and Wade Kieran. How does music kind of fit into your practice now? Is that something you're going to be exploring more in the future? Yeah, definitely. I think music's such a great way to communicate a message. And with that particular um, piece of music, I kind of wanted to pose a question of what happens to traditions when people leave a place what do they evolve over time and I think I'm kind of interested in the evolution of these traditions and so much of folklore which is what I try to explore in my practice comes from music and for example the piece of music that we just heard and yeah I'm kind of interested in continuing to do that. Can you tell us about the piece of music that we just heard? Yeah, Could you oh, yeah that of one? course. That yes. <laughs> so Simon Diaz is like inarguably um, Venezuela's greatest composer and he did something very special throughout his career which was to preserve the folklore of the plains regions of the country and just left such a wealth of music um, that's so important to heritage like every Venezuelan person knows Simon Diaz and loves him. Um, Cristal is a song that um, my mom used to play every summer. We used to go on road trips, just the two of us, from Merida, which is my hometown, all the way to um, Falcón, which is in the coast. And even to say that we did road trips by ourselves in that time, it would be something that you could not do right now. So that was a very special moment in time for me and her. And listening to this song and learning about Simon Diaz and learning about other Venezuelan musicians that are that have helped me retain that sense of identity in that time was I think very important. Yeah, absolutely. Um so what do you what would you like people to take away from this particular exhibition? So with this exhibition, I think there's well so one of the challenges that I thought that I find um, being a Venezuelan artist and living in Australia is the relevance of my practice to people here. And so I think that's something that I really strive to do in my work is kind of help people get a sense of place, so the sense of idea of the situation that's happening back home, but also to try and like kind of step outside of their own identity and see how these issues are also very relevant to us here. So I think it's to 
understand that relationship and um, spark a conversation or just, you know, inspire a sense of activism. Yeah, yeah, because I guess in your work there are elements of it that are very specific to Venezuelan culture and to what's happening in your home country at the moment, but there are also parts of it that are kind of talking about politics on a world scale. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, like what kind of relates in between the, um, I guess, intersections of the political so, landscape right now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's so interesting because especially with the current rise of populism in the world, um, I can't help but go back 17 years in time and see how that, you know, how that rose in Venezuela through Hugo Chavez and how the government manipulated the population and um, sold this idea of socialism, which uh, maybe never intended to succeed. And I can see the parallels between um, his rhetoric and Trump's rhetoric, but also the rhetoric of local politicians in Australia. So, yeah, yeah it's interesting it's as well that your um, kind of part of your homecoming was to attend protests, because we've been talking about that a little bit in the last few weeks, just how this kind of rise of populism and people's new engagement with kind of protests and activism yeah. is also changing the way they think about their feminism. And so yeah. like maybe like if you're taught feminism, maybe by your mother, you have one idea of it. And this new new activism that I feel is happening is making people maybe interrogate some of the ideas they have. And so it's interesting that that kind of homecoming inspired some of that as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess when you when you decide to kind of immerse yourself in a topic or learn about something, there's so many doors that are open that, you know, provide you with more understanding of said things. So, yes, it's... You're also speaking tomorrow for tour. Yes. <laughs> Big so week busy. ahead. I know. <laughs> Where's that happening? Um, so tour is taking place at Cake Wines tomorrow evening at 6pm. So I'll be talking for 15 minutes about... Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the talk because I'm going to kind of frame it in, in a timeline of when I departed from the country when I was nine and what the situation was at that moment and kind of weave facts and experiences that, that have occurred over the past 17 years and how that relates to my work. So. And then your exhibition opens on Thursday. Yes, next in, Thursday. At, in Surrey Hills. Yes, at 270 Devonshire Street. Great. Um, if you missed any of the details, if, or if you just tuned in, we're talking to Nadia Hernandez about her upcoming exhibition, her work, and her talk at Two Up tomorrow. And we'll pop all the details up on our agenda show page if you have just become listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> just, just tuned in. I don't know. Just tuned in. I feel like I say tuned in to Become. Um, <laughs> um, but you've also chosen one more track for us oh, today. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Oh, my God. Yes. So... Oh, actually, I th you know what's crazy? It's that you played <laughs> this album <laughs> um, and you actually told me about, no, and you know, you made me realize that this album existed. So Angel Rada is a Venezuelan musician who created very avant-garde electronic music in the 70s. And he is really like one of a kind. And he's part of a recent compilation called, I think it's like Venezuela 70, and it's all about experimental electronic and rock music from the 70s. So this is a very exciting track. <laughs> this one is called Bashiba. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nadia, thanks so much for coming in Thank to talk you. to us today. Thanks for having me. You've been on Agenda on FBI.